Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, last time we had Dr. Gabrielle Line on the show, we had a fascinating conversation around lean muscle mass and protein consumption, and we promised to have her back to dive even deeper into these topics. Well, the time has come as she has an incredible new book titled Forever Strong, which is about to come out. Gabrielle is a functional medicine doctor, board certified in family medicine, and completed a combined research and clinical fellowship in geriatrics and nutritional sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. She is also the founder of the Institute for Muscle-Centric Medicine and was the first to call muscle the quote-unquote organ of longevity. In today's show, Gabrielle shares lean muscle building tips for any age and how to gauge your own muscle mass to see how well you're improving. Plus, she responds to her controversial Pilates statement from our last episode, which certainly caused an uproar the last time she was on the show. So, the last time we had you on, we were having a fantastic conversation about building muscle and protein consumption, and I thought I asked a very, you know, harmless, innocuous question about Pilates. And if I recall, it was something along the lines of, is Pilates enough if one is focused on building muscle mass? And your answer was, nothing against Pilates. I like Pilates, but no, it's, it's not enough. And wow, the uproar, the trolling, what is going on? One thing is important to recognize is that when something becomes deeply emotional for people, Uh, that usually tends to skew the science. When there is a robust emotional response, that often makes uh, one or should make one take a step back, quite frankly. That is a a bit of my perspective. Again, is there anything wrong with Pilates? No. Pilates is a great thing for strength, mobility. I know that they've used it very much for rehab, and, and that is often many women's primary form of exercise. Nothing against Pilates. I think at some point, and also, by the way, it sounds as if there's multiple modalities of Pilates, right? Um, And I think at some point, when we move into thinking about the strength continuum, there comes a point where adding load, different kinds of load, resistance, uh, free weights potentially can really become effective in muscle hypertrophy. Not a very controversial statement, I I don't think. Okay, so we set the record straight? Yes, very controversial. And quite frankly, I think I said a lot of things that potentially uh, may have been more controversial, but for some reason, the concept of Pilates was very, uh, it was was very heated when I said that there should likely be some uh, additional resistance training, up until a point. I suppose if your goal is hypertrophy, um, there's many ways to obtain it, but I, I do believe that resistance training under load with free weights, if someone can safely do it, would be uh, very beneficial. Well said. I think we put this one to bed. What do you think? Yeah. I, Should I, we run I, this on Instagram just to test it out again? Just for fun. And by the way, I, I was looking for this great article and I actually found it. And so I'm just going to highlight this article. This is a great article by Brad Schoenfeld, and it is Loading Recommendations for Muscle Strength, Hypertrophy, and Local Endurance. 
a reexamination of the uh, repetition continuum. So I, I thought this is cool. It just takes a look at the high load, low load strength, hypertrophy, and muscular endurance. Uh, many ways to skin a cat, but uh, a great article for people who are looking to reference something. So can you give us a quick primer on some of those terms you just used, hypertrophy, low load, uh, just in, in general for those unfamiliar? You got it. So when we think about strength, that's really the ability to produce a maximum force against any kind of external resistance. And again, is there multiple ways to get strength? Yes. Muscle hypertrophy refers to the growth of muscle tissue. And again, that can manifest in a variety of uh, adaptations. And typically, when people think about hypertrophy, again, there are multiple ways to do it. And I think some of the science has, has changed in terms of this rep continuum. That could be uh, often spoken about 8 to 12 repetitions. And that's what people commonly refer to as the hypertrophy zone. But again, uh, can these things change? Could you do a lighter load with more weight? You absolutely could. Um, and I think that that is evidence in some of the uh, aging literature. And by the way, I always believed that you needed to lift heavier but it, it is really about driving an adaptation. And then muscular endurance is uh, defined as the ability to resist muscular fatigue when you are using a submaximal resistance. Um, so what could that look like? That could be a 15 plus repetition. And we all know what that feels like. Uh, that's kind of your, uh, you know, lot of repetitions to exhaustion, quite potentially. So to take a step back, you practice muscle-centric medicine. You wrote this fantastic new book. I'll hold it up to the camera, Forever Strong. And you have this thesis that muscle is the organ of longevity. A lot of people are passionate about longevity these days. So walk us through the why. Why, why is muscle the organ of longevity, in your opinion? Well, let me tell you a story, a really quick story, as to where some of the hypothesis and the foundation of this work came from. Um, and you and I have spoke many times, and we're friends. And I did a fellowship in nutritional sciences and geriatrics, which people would think, well, that's a, an interesting combination. What does geriatrics, which can be defined as an individual over the age of 65, have to do with a nutritional science fellowship? And in combination with that was obesity medicine research. I also, part of the job as a clinical fellow is to, is to run an obesity medicine clinic. And one of the things that I noticed over time, and this was, I, I don't think I've told you this story before, right? I have not told you about this one participant of this study. So running this weight management clinic, and this was um, for extremely overweight individuals. This is, was um, extreme obesity, if not morbid obesity, was kind of one end of what I was doing. The other end that I was interested in and some of the research projects and one research project in particular, as a fellow, you work on various projects. One research project in particular, we were looking at brain function and body composition, meaning body composition, the amount of obesity an individual had to be to qualify for the study, which was well over 30%. And brain function, we are doing cognitive testing which was both done in an fMRI machine as well as in-person uh, testing. 
And then on weekends and during the day when I wasn't waking up at four in the morning to do uh, muscle biopsies and fat biopsies, I was either rounding at a nursing home or I was seeing in the hospital or in a memory and aging clinic uh, geriatric patients, some with pretty significant Alzheimer's to moderate or mild cognitive impairment. And this one patient in particular, we'll just call her Betty, she was a mom of three in her mid-50s, and she had always struggled with the same 20 pounds. Yo-yo dieting her entire life was really struggling to lose the weight that she had put on after her pregnancies. And it just seemed to be this really common cycle that I think a lot of the listeners can relate to. And, you know, she was just amazing, just funny and just present and warm and loving and had always put herself back or last. I imaged her brain and her brain looked like the beginning of an Alzheimer's brain. And it was devastating. It was devastating the advice that she had been given, which largely hasn't changed, which was reduce her calories and move more. And what happened was that in the process, she would yo-yo diet and lose skeletal muscle, and she destroyed her metabolism. She destroyed her muscle mass. She destroyed her metabolism. And then I started to think about all the patients and all these patients that I was seeing. It wasn't that they were overweight that was the problem. It was the fact that they had unhealthy skeletal muscle as the root cause of these symptoms that we were now seeing, whether it was Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, insulin resistance, or obesity. These weren't diseases of obesity. They were diseases of skeletal muscle first. And that is where muscle-centric medicine came from. And quite frankly, if we aim to correct a problem, we have to make sure that we are actually asking the right question. Otherwise, it's going to be much of the same. For the last 50 years, we've been fighting the obesity epidemic. And for the last 50 years, we've only gotten worse. We haven't even gotten better. And this brings us to the concept of muscle-centric medicine, which I'm going to let you talk before I just dive into it, because I certainly don't want this to be a monologue. I think resistance training, consuming protein, not new, but I think newer for women. I think it's we've there's a cultural shift here and anecdotally i hear and i see more women thinking about resistance training i think you've played a role here with that said we go through different issues opportunities by decade how should women specifically think about muscle mass by each decade let's start like 20s through the through the 80s and beyond i love it but first i'm going to sell you on why muscle is important I, I need to sell the listener as to why muscle is important. Otherwise, you're going to go, yeah, I know I should be working out and I know I should be eating protein. But let me tell you why. Skeletal muscle is not just for looking good naked, which is definitely a plus. It is not just for power and strength like we discussed earlier. It's not just for Pilates or weightlifting. Skeletal muscle is the largest endocrine organ system in the body. And what does that mean? That means when you contract skeletal muscle, skeletal muscle secretes hormones. These hormones are chemical messengers. 
They are called myokines. And you're probably thinking, why do I care about a myokine? Number one, take a moment to really hear what I just said. This idea that contracting skeletal muscle, that what skeletal muscle releases travels throughout the body and impacts nearly every organ system. There is a crosstalk. Skeletal muscle is an endocrine organ that you have direct control over. I cannot say that for anything else to my knowledge. Contracting skeletal muscle releases myokines, which interface with immune cells. They can impact immunity. They can help regulate immune responses for when we, we all have heard about Hashimoto's or um, all there's all, all kinds of autoimmune illnesses out there. In fact, it is much more common than we would like to see. And whether that's genetic, environmental, it's probably a perfect storm. But if an individual is struggling with any kind of autoimmunity, exercise is definitely incredibly helpful because it modulates the immune system. The other thing why the other reason why skeletal muscle or one of many reasons why it's important is it is your metabolic sink. And that it quite simply means that when we think about nutrition and eating and carbohydrates, the majority of the place that these carbohydrates and are disposed of is skeletal muscle. So the more healthy muscle mass you have, the more places that you have to store carbohydrates. We store carbohydrates in the form of glycogen. In addition, skeletal muscle is full of mitochondria. Mitochondria, is, we've all heard of the powerhouse of the cell. It is a place where ATP is utilized. It is a site of fatty acid oxidation. This all is within skeletal muscle, which again, you have direct control over. It is your body armor if you were to fall or if you were to get sick, which um hopefully none of us have to contend with, but it, it, it does happen. If you have issues with fertility, body composition becomes a major issue. And I know that you have a lot of women listeners. Polycystic ovarian syndrome is uh, one way that I would like to highlight this idea that skeletal muscle can actually play a role in fertility because the more you can regulate insulin sensitivity, the better your chances of managing your body composition. So what we think about PCOS, we know that, um, of course, there are there are multiple things that can play a role into that. But if someone is struggling with insulin resistance, skeletal muscle is the way to leverage this. And quite frankly, it is your storage form of amino acids, which becomes really critical as we age. The body is constantly turning over. You are a new person and you have uh, the turnover of liver and gastrointestinal, the gastrointestinal tract, skin, hair, nails, you name it, those require amino acids. And oftentimes when someone is not eating a diet that is robust enough in protein, the body will dip into its own protein reserves, which are skeletal muscle, which technically I'm saying it kind of on a macro level, but it needs those amino acids. And so Hopefully, listening to what I am saying has now convinced you that skeletal muscle is really the key to health and longevity. In fact, we know that the lower your muscle mass, you have a decreased ability to survive nearly any disease. So better for everything, brain, heart, major organ, immune system, hormones, and the mirror. Yeah, and the mirror. I love that. And the mirror. And let's talk about when you are younger. 
when you are younger, you have a lot more flexibility. Um, you could probably eat a Twinkie diet. I don't recommend it. But you have a lot more flexibility on your training capacity and also your nutrition. The body is very robust, and this could be in your 20s. You can get away with um, probably a lower protein diet and, uh, quite frankly, uh, different training modalities. You can be less careful because you are largely driven by hormones and the body is really primed for growth. I will say, though, that this is the time to really build out that bank of skeletal muscle and bone, quite frankly, because let's face it, it doesn't get easier. And we've all seen that. And what does that look like in your 80s or 60s and beyond, 60s, 70s and 80s? It becomes more challenging to maintain healthy skeletal muscle mass. And we have seen it in our family members, those that we love become sarcopenic, which is a decrease in muscle mass and strength. And arguably, however, I will say because of our increasing sedentary lifestyle, potentially that can begin in our 30s, which rides along with um, many of the other diseases that we do see. We say Alzheimer's also potentially begins in your 30s. Same with cardiovascular disease. So these diseases of aging actually are influenced decades before. So when you are in your 20s and 30s, this is your prime time for optimizing the health of skeletal muscle. I can vouch for that one personally. I stopped doing resistance training and I had to, I started to notice I was losing muscle mass. I was losing some weight. I'm, I'll turn 49 in November. And I got really serious about resistance training once we moved to, to Miami. And I have had to work really hard to gain. I think I gained about nine pounds of, of muscle. That's incredible. But it's been hard. Like it has been difficult. <laughs> Very difficult. I'm in fairly like good shape. Difficult. And so, you know, what I did to measure it is at the, the gym I go to, they have an in-body scan. It's not a DEXA scan. So so I got a sense of my 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 muscle, my lean lean muscle mass, skeletal mass and, and body fat. What what how does one listening just gauge their baseline? Are there any low tech ways? I know there's a DEXA scan, which is probably the gold standard and then probably an in body, but like what are some low tech ways to, to know like do I have enough muscle? Do I have too much fat? What's going on with my bones? These are great questions. And I was actually just having a conversation with um, a mutual friend of ours, you know, uh, Dr. Alexis Cowan. And we were talking about how this idea that the body should be 40% skeletal muscle mass, right? That's the number that everybody uses. But is that actually true? Should it be 40% of your body weight as an organ system? Arguably, it should probably be, be higher. Um, so I, I just want to lay that at the feet of the listener because I, I think that there may be some different ways of thinking about it. And, and so I'm going to work on some of these calculations to really look through the literature and see what should the actual number be? What is the range? Because we don't have a range. There is not a range for optimal. When we think about body fat percentage with the DEXA, 30% body fat is too high. Um, uh, an in-body is a great way if someone can get an in-body scan, but some people don't have access to an in-body scan. So what would be an alternative way to think about muscle health? Well, you could do a waist-height ratio, 
simply figure out how tall you are and divide it by your waist. So a waist to height ratio. So it's your waist divided by your height and it should be less than 0.5. That would be um, one way to look at potentially body composition as it relates to body fat. The other way to think about skeletal muscle mass, quite simply someone could do at home, would actually be to take some measurements of your strength. Where is your strength? And understanding how many push-ups you can do, how many squats you can do, um, how much load can you lift? Obviously, do these things safely. I, I outline this all in the book, a baseline assessment of where you are physically. Then the other thing you can look at is your blood work. And if you don't have a physician that can access that, there's lots of places that you can do that, like Inside Tracker. And you should know what your fasting blood glucose is. You should know what your fasting insulin is. You should know what your triglycerides are. These numbers will all become out of range over time the more unhealthy skeletal muscle mass you have. So if these numbers are outside of range, this is one way that you can think potentially you have unhealthy skeletal muscle. So I think the labs are very helpful. Uh, I love the hack, the height, the height waist ratio, their waist to height ratio. With regards to the strength test, how does one know that they can establish their baseline, but how does one know how they stack against their peers by age group? Uh, This is another topic I've thought quite a bit about because I'm not, you know, there's lots of recommendations for how much an individual should squat. You know, should they be able to squat double their body weight? Should they be able to deadlift two and a half times their body weight? There's all these kinds of metrics. And we use large populations to think of these things. What becomes really important for the listener to understand is it really is about where they are and making improvements. So for you, you put on nine pounds of skeletal muscle. I could not have told you how much <laughs> skeletal muscle mass you should have put on. Our podcast listeners know this, but I'll just repeat it for new new listeners. I also have a, I'm 6'7", so I have a massive crane. You are a massive individual. You are, And by the way, if they don't know this, you've been a barely a very highly competitive athlete for a long time. So the fact that you were able to- 25 years ago. But it doesn't matter. Muscle history is important. Muscle history is important. It's fair. And that is something so fascinating to know that you, with your stature and just your physicality, I mean, for reference, I'm what, 5'1 on a good day, maybe 110 pounds also on a good day. The fact that you were able to put on quite a bit of skeletal muscle means- you know, it's it's a positive. And I couldn't have told you how much skeletal muscle you should have put on. And your question is, how do we know where we are and where we need to go? And that is deeply personal. What we do know is that individuals do need to be improving. The first couple weeks of a any training program, it's going to be more neurological adaptation, right? Strength comes before hypertrophy. And I think that you probably could attest to that. You're, you were starting to see changes in strength before you began to really put on skeletal muscle. So get a baseline as to where you are and then shoot to improve over time. And also hold yourself accountable. Would that be 12 weeks reassessing? You should. What if someone is, you know, a busy mom? Like myself? Like yourself. 
you know, I want to hear about, well, we'll start with you first. You know, you're a busy mom. You have two little kids. You just moved to a new city, Houston. Your husband's in a res like Baylor's like the best urology residence program in the country. So your husband's there doing like a hundred hours a week. Yeah. That's hard. How, and you see patients, you have, a, you, you see patients. You also wrote, wrote a book. And I have a full podcast, which by the way, you were on. Yes. You have a podcast. Like there's a lot going on. And I'll just make a note. A lot of doctors we know don't see patients. You actually see patients. I do. I, I see patients. I have a full clinic. Yes, I do. And a team who is amazing. Yeah. What's a day? What's your day look like? How do you eat? How do you move? How do you fit it in? How do you find time for yourself to relax and reconnect? These are these are really great questions. Um, and I would say uh, just to let people know I have a little over a two-year-old. So he is a little over two. So for all the moms out there, you know that I'm in it. And I have a four-year-old. And I have a boy and a girl. And they literally try to beat each other up all the time. Um, and my husband is in a surgical residency. So he is working 100 hours a week. He was up and out of the house by 4.45 this morning. He will probably be home around 9 tonight. And um, for me, I, well, he wakes us all up, wakes me up 4.45. Depending on the day, I will get up and I will train. So I will train. I will try to get training in before the kids are awake. On the days that I am taking them to school, which I do half of the week take them to school, I will try to train at 5 to 6. And I tell the kids before that if they wake up, I will either be upstairs doing some kind of cardiovascular activity or I will be downstairs doing weights. If they wake up, I will rope them in to joining me because uh, it is never too early to start, by the way, for kids to be very physically active. I love kettlebells. I will do some kind of kettlebell uh, activity, whether it's a carry or a swing or a Turkish getup. Um, I will also do... Um, push press or some kind of squat with kettlebells. So I don't use at home. I don't use a, a, a rack or anything like that just because the kids are little. So much easier to have a whole bunch of kettlebells on the floor and uh, I'll make it really hard. So we also have a Bulgarian bag. Sometimes I'll throw a Bulgarian bag over my shoulder and then we have various levels of kettlebells. I'll hold those and I'll just walk, walk around it in the garage. And then I will do some kind of sprint interval whether it is on a treadmill or on a airdyne, like an assault bike, to keep it really quick and effective. I don't do long bouts of cardio. Uh, I used to. I used to do a lot of rucking, long bouts of cardio. So I will do that. And then obviously the kids are little. They will wake up. I will get them ready. We will have breakfast. It will take at least an hour and a half for anything to move the needle. And uh, I will get them to school. How long is that workout? Anywhere of probably close to 45 minutes. And those are the days that I work out at home. But you could get it done in a much shorter period of time. Right. That, as I was saying, if someone someone could probably jam it in. If, if So essentially what I'm hearing is kettlebells play a significant role for you at home if you're short on time. The great thing about kettlebells is they start from five pounds all the way up to hundreds of pounds. So I'm hearing some, some squats, some push-ups, some kettlebell exercises, you could do that in probably 15 to 20 minutes if you're just kind of moving fast. Yes, you could, and you could do it safely, and you could really crush yourself if you wanted to. And here's the other thing about it is, you know, we talk about skeletal muscle, but skeletal muscle, 
you know, we talk about it in these ways related to health and we talk about skeletal muscle as it relates to longevity. But here's the catch. It is a currency. Skeletal muscle is the metabolic currency and it is a currency that you cannot buy. And when you have to earn it through hard work, it really helps you become a certain kind of person. It requires, like you said, you put in a lot of hard work. It requires discipline and it requires a level of resilience and it requires a level of commitment that you can't fake. You're either doing it and you're executing it or you're not. And there is a cultivation of character that happens with the discipline of training. And there's a million ways you can talk yourself out of it. I know because I have to work out tomorrow. I have a workout schedule tomorrow afternoon and I'm already trying to talk myself out of it because I know it's going to just be brutal. But I'm going to show up but I'm going to well be aware that I'm going to try to talk myself out of this workout. So be, I, I want to go to mindset, but before we go there, how many days a week is like the bare minimum to get started for someone who's listening in your opinion? And can we share somewhere, maybe you have like a, uh, do you have a beginner workout? I do. I don't know if you know that, but I have a beginner and intermediate workout. And by the way, I could never be a fitness influencer because I shot a hundred videos and uh, they're actually available. We have a whole video library that is available. Let's, can we link to that in the show notes so everyone can go there? Yes. Amazing. And okay, so you get your workout in. And that's just the days that I'm at home taking the kids to school. And let's say for some reason I didn't wake up at five or Shane didn't get me up at 445. I, I mean, I'm pretty good at waking up and, and just executing on that. I will not miss the workout. I will have to get it in. So I'd rather, I'd rather suffer earlier then know that I have to do it at 5 or 6 p.m. Do you think about it as suffering or do you really enjoy the workouts? I love it. I hate working out in the afternoon. Why? Too late for your body? I feel like it is very hard to get into the zone later on in the day, whether it's 5 or 6 p.m. Just mentally, I find it a lot more difficult and it can affect my sleep. To really push it, again, we're looking for adaptation. You can, you don't have to push yourself um in the way that it has to be heavy or explosive. They're all skills that are really good to have. But again, when we think about this hypertrophy continuum, there's all different ways to get the result. So you're really looking for adaptation. Um, I personally really enjoy explosive activities. I enjoy things that are heavy and fast to move, but not, but everyone, you know, you don't have to do that. So uh, again, there's multiple ways to do it. For a beginner starting out, number one, you might never feel ready. So please do not rely on the moment of feeling ready or feel as if you have to lose weight or get in shape before you go and train. Again, I am a physician who sees patients, and that is something that I've heard many, many, many times that people uh, struggle to go to the gym because they feel that they have to get in shape first. This is not, if we can shift from what people have to lose to what they have to gain from muscle and strength, that's a much better strategy, both physically and mentally. Let's go there. Let's talk about mindset. It's a big part of the book. Were you surprised? I bet you people are going to be surprised. I was a little surprised, but then I thought about you and I know you and I'm not surprised. It makes sense. Yeah. I mean, the book is, you know, for the listener, if you're thinking about, so the book is Forever Strong. It is a evidence-based guidebook for nutrition and training and understanding 
how really to get the best out of yourself uh, physically, but also mentally. And again, I see patients. I have seen patients since 2006. I can provide you with the best guidebook, but if you do not have the mental framework for execution, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. And so that is why I included it in the book. So give me an example of a good mental framework and a bad mental framework. So one thing that I think is really, really valuable is understanding your weaknesses. People always talk about what are the strengths and I'm going to do this tomorrow and I'm never going to binge on the cookies that my kids brought home or I'm not going to I'm not going to X, Y and Z. And the human being or the human animal is so predictable Right. And the weaknesses and the challenges and the things that you will face are incredibly predictable. The hard part is most people don't plan for those. And quite frankly, those are the easiest to plan for. I'll give you an example out of my own life. I know that when I travel, I'm going to be hungrier. I'm going to be much more likely to miss a workout. I am going to want to eat, you know, those, um, what are they called? Sweet smarts, those gummy candies, whatever it is. They're good. Yeah. See, they're good. You know it. Uh, not always available. But um, I know that after I travel, I'm going to be really hungry or let's say I'm doing multiple podcasts or I have a speaking event. I'm going to want to just eat a bunch of junk food. Like I know this about myself. Maybe it's because I don't get hungry uh, the day of and I'm not eating as much as I should. But man, I'm telling you that body, it's going to want a bunch of fuel. And the fuel it wants is typically not a lean cut of a meat or a chicken breast, it's give me the, I don't know, the bare naked apple chips with a little bit of chocolate or X, Y, and Z. So I know this about myself. So I plan for it. I do not kid myself that I am going to be wanting and craving these things. So if it's available to me, I will eat it unless I know where I'm going to be. I've already Instacarted it to my hotel, which are things, whatever is going to be on my meal plan already. So I have it all waiting for me. Because I know when I get back to that hotel at 7 p.m., instead of going off my nutrition plan, I have a game plan. I'm not surprised by my human nature. So some will, will talk about the 80-20 rule. Yeah. You embrace the 80-20 rule, 80%, I'm going to stick to my, my regimen, and then 20%, I'll, I'll do whatever. Or do you think about it? Because I know you're not restrictive at the same time. You have to know yourself. So yeah, and I know for some people, they, they have to be restrictive. They are all or nothing personalities, addictive personalities. And that's, that's very real. How do, you, how do you think about that? 80-20, 90-10, something entirely different? I don't think about my nutrition plan as um, a diet. For me, it is very much a lifestyle. And I think about it in advance. So I prep my food for the week. I know what I'm having. It's all stuff I like lean proteins, some kind of um, carbohydrate, and some kind of vegetable and fruit. When it comes to going off of a plan, I think there's a couple ways to think about it. Number one, if you put yourself in the position, let's say you have weight to lose, maybe you've got 10 pounds to lose, and you have struggled with that 10 pounds for a long period of time, going off your plan is going to erode your self-confidence over time right? Because you're still trying to, again, and if you have 10 pounds and, and you don't care about losing it, then that's a whole different story. But if you are someone like many of my patients who go, you know what? I have been struggling for the last five years to lose the same 10 pounds, but nothing is happening. 
then we have to change something. And potentially, if those individuals are doing the 80-20 rule and nothing is moving the needle, then that is not the place to start. The idea is committing to a plan and a program that can be, for that moment, their new lifestyle. So then they become the person that executes on their standardized meals and there's no chaotic eating. I think when we think about the 80-20 rule, again, it really depends on the person, but it creates a little bit of chaos. And if you have an endpoint and a goal, if you create chaos for the person, they are going to fall off their program much more frequently. It's not going to be 80-20. It's going to be more like 50-50. So do you think part of the problem in our inability culturally to really effectively manage our weight, that it's partially due to this idea that you had to do cardio to lose pounds and not enough focus on building lean muscle? Yeah. So your question that I'm hearing you ask is, why do I still think that we are struggling so badly? I believe that we are struggling so badly for a number of reasons, which I will happily lay out. Number one, dietary protein has been an afterthought. The current recommendation for dietary protein is 0.8 grams per kilogram uh, body weight. And that recommendation has not changed since 1968 which for the listener is 0.37 grams per pound. So if you are 115 pounds, your recommended dietary allowance is about 45 grams of protein a day. That is way too low. Why do I think that we still struggle with obesity? Well, the fact that protein has been swept under the rug and again, has not changed the recommendation since 1968 tells me one of two things. Number one, we've had no new science or it just hasn't been a priority. We've had a lot of new science. So the idea is it probably just hasn't been a priority because we have to face um, things like feeding a world, the World Health Organization. When you change protein recommendations in the US, there's there are all kinds of implications that happen. Uh, so we have really focused our attention on dietary carbohydrates and fat. When you change your diet to be protein forward, uh, a number of things happen. Number one, you definitely are more satiated. There's this concept called the protein leverage hypothesis. And basically, it's this concept that the human has, and many animals, have an appetite for protein. And it's really because there's a need for these amino acids. 20 different amino acids, nine of which are essential, meaning we must get them from the diet. When we are eating highly palatable processed foods and foods that are lower in protein, the body, according to the protein leverage hypothesis, and let's say the uh, percentage of protein calories, which by the way, I, I don't think that we should think in percentage of calories, is you know less than between 15 and 18%, the lower the percentage of protein in the diet, the more you are driven to overfeed. So this is one reason why people think that obesity has been such an issue. I'd like to turn your attention to dietary protein because when you increase dietary protein, and, and I did this early on in my career um, when I was an undergraduate, I was working on a handful of pretty pivotal studies that came out of uh, Donald Lehman's lab, that when you have two groups, let's say they both have 1,600 calories. You have two groups of women that are uh, postmenopausal and 
or, or peri or postmenopausal, and they're both eating 1600 calories. You have one group that those calories come uh, from the majority of them are uh, carbohydrates, let's say 55 grams of carbohydrates at that first meal. And uh, the other group has dietary protein as their primary meal at that first meal. What you will find is that those individuals on a higher carbohydrate diet versus the individuals on a higher protein diet, um, the ones on a higher protein diet will maintain their lean mass, which lean mass is everything. It's bone, it's liver, it's muscle, and lose body fat while being on the same amount of calories as this higher carbohydrate group, which by the way, actually has a change in blood sugar and insulin and triglycerides for the worse, they become worse versus a group that is higher protein. You will see an improvement in triglyceride levels when you reduce carbohydrates less than 130 grams per day. You will see oftentimes while carbohydrates are controlled an improvement in blood pressure, you will see an improvement in glucose and you will see an improvement in fasting insulin levels. So when we correct for dietary protein, it allows for the body to more to to work more efficiently. I mean, that's just based on so even though calories are the same, by adjusting dietary protein first, you really can improve body composition and the metrics that follow. So you mentioned Don Lehman, one of your mentors. We've had him on the show. Uh, so I encourage everyone to go over there. We go go deep on amino acids, specifically leucine. And I, I want to get back to what you eat because, okay, lunch and dinner, I think are pretty straightforward. You know, you get some wild salmon, maybe some sardines or beef or chicken. You can, you can get there with the animal protein if you consume it pretty easily. But the big challenge for a lot of people who are busy trying to get a kid out the door to school is breakfast. Do you have a go-to breakfast? Breakfast is actually, I would say breakfast and your last meal of the day are the two most important meals. How about them apples? No pun intended. And often, I will say that I used to tell people to fast. I, I don't tell them that anymore. And the idea of breakfast is very important. We have eggs in our house. We have eggs, we have frittatas, and we actually make them before. So how many eggs do you, because there's only like six grams of protein in an egg. How many eggs I do you I might have four eggs and I'll have some kind of shake or some kind of kefir, some kind of dairy product, believe it or not. Dairy gets a hugely bad rap, but I'm okay with it. So you mentioned kefir. Why kefir specifically and not like- Prebiotics. Okay. There is going to be a gut muscle axis that is going to come out more and people are going to begin to talk about it more. This idea that there's this interface between gastrointestinal health and muscle health. I, I do believe that. I'm not, I don't know if I'm so ready to talk about it, but- We'll have you back on that one. I, I do think that there is, you know, because by the way, you guys do have a great, you guys do have a, actually a great protein powder that's behind you. And it's interesting because I, I don't know if you thought about it or not, but there is, you know, I definitely think that there is this gut muscle access and there is some data to support that and, and some synergy behind some of these things. You will love her organic fiber potency product. I will send it to you. I'm going to hold you to it. So I, we will send it to you. Or I will have Colleen hand deliver it in LA when she sees you next week. I'm excited. I'm excited. 
the uh, so for breakfast, we yeah, so I, I plan it out or I might have a protein shake. I also might have a protein shake. So going back to the the key for yogurt and dairy getting a bad rap, what what should one look for? Is it you know grass fed, full fat? You see a lot of the yogurts with no fat. Let's talk about yogurt. I love non fat Greek yogurt. I love non fat because I think calories matter. And when you know my diet is more lean, I would much. I am much more likely to have a higher carbohydrate diet with a higher protein diet than I am to have a higher fat diet. I just do much better on, for me personally, I can easily tolerate 130 grams of carbohydrates and easily 130 grams of protein. I'm curious, which yogurt do you buy? Depends on, I mean, I try to pick an organic. An organic, I'm going to say this and you're going to cringe. I try to get the non-fat organic yogurt, a Greek yogurt. But if I'm in a pinch and I'm in a hotel and I know that I need to Instacart something and it has to be Fage yogurt or whatever that's called, I'm okay with it and I'll eat it. Yep. Because you can't, you know, when I was younger, everything had to be perfect. The It had to be organic. It had to be fresh. It had to be all of this stuff. And the reality is that will get into the, that will get in the way of making good choices. Yeah. For, for us, for yogurt. We'll do the stony field grass fed. It's full fat though. And then Wallaby has organic yogurt too. We try to give that one to our kids. And then I hear you when you're traveling, look, traveling happens and you don't want to stress over it. You have to live your life. Right. Yeah. So that's what I'll do for breakfast. Um, like today, I had uh, a frittata, frittata with turkey. I got about 40 grams of protein. You've got some great recipes in the book, which I encourage everyone to pick up. You know, you, you mentioned you worked in Don Lehman's lab, and we've kind of touched on nutrition science. And it has come a long way. But the more I learn, the more I find it so problematic <laughs> and confusing. So can we talk a moment about wh what do we know? What, what are the universal truths with nutrition science? The universal truths with nutrition science that we know that can apply to most people, we know that there is an essential need, at least we know this right now, and I'm going to actually uh, throw a, uh, a wrench into this, that there is an essential need for protein. We do know that these essential amino acids must be obtained from the diet, these 20 different or the Nine essentials are 20 different amino acids. We're talking about for optimal health. The body needs dietary protein, and I would say that that is of critical importance. And there are deficiencies that can happen without enough dietary protein, although not common. Uh, but the body needs and requires dietary protein in any kind of growth phase when you are younger and also when you are aging. Uh, it is undeniable and it is protective. The other aspect to the quote, what we know is that there are probably a small set of pe subset of people that their gut microbiome is different and they can, this has not been demonstrated in humans to my knowledge yet, but that their gut microbiome can actually break down the bugs in their gut microbiome can um, generate essential amino acids which if that ends up being true, that would change conceptually what we think about the protein need of essential amino acids. 
that does not discount the fundamental truth that we do require dietary protein. Would it mean that some people can get away with less, potentially, versus others? But there is a universal truth that we do need dietary protein. So I, I would uh, say that to be a universal truth. I would say that we can all agree that there is an essential fatty acid need and that we can all agree that carbohydrates can be generated and that there isn't a dietary need for that. I, I would be comfortable with all of those statements. If you could wave your magic wand and conduct a study that required no time or effort from you and get real results, what, what would that study be? What I, I'd really like to see is I'd like to see, you know, we often talk about dietary protein as a macronutrient as a whole. And when you look at the back of a label, you just see protein. But again, this protein is highly complex. It's made up of 20 different amino acids. These 20 different amino acids all have different biological roles and different biological fates. So it's not just protein. Each, for example, leucine is important for mTOR stimulation for muscle protein synthesis. Threonine is important for gut lining because it is a precursor for mucin production. Um, tyrosine is important for uh, other neurotransmitters. Uh, tryptophan is important for serotonin. So these while we look at dietary protein as this one thing, there are 20 different amino acids. What I would love to see is I would love to see us begin to think about dietary protein as individual nutrients. So each amino acid has its own need and own optimal threshold. I would love to see what those are and where it plays out in this spectrum of nutrition. So for example, you know, could we see what the ideal methionine intake is and what are the, you know, what does that actually look like? Not a, a minimum to prevent deficiencies, but where is the optimal level for lysine? And what happens when we begin to shift the focus from just this macronutrient protein to these individual amino acids? And what is the preferred ratio of, of those? That's what I would like to know. That is interesting. I think you, methionine, I believe eggs are a great source. Do I have that right? Yeah. But, you know, who would be a person who would benefit from methionine restriction? Would that be someone with an elevated homocysteine? Like who, like wh how do we begin to think about not just dietary protein as a whole, but how do we begin to think about these individual amino acids? And is there a way to really focus nutrition on, on that? That would be what I would love to see. So, okay, you, you have my attention. You mentioned elevated homocysteine, which I have a crazy history there. What, do you have a hypothesis on methionine and homocysteine, or is that just a random example? I mean, potentially. Um, you know, I, I would have to look at the data and think about it, but could there be a methionine-cysteine uh, ratio that would be, be more beneficial for someone with elevated homocysteine? So more methionine or less methionine? Change the ratio of cysteine. So potentially increase this, you know, uh, potentially increase cysteine. Again, I haven't dove deep into this data because you asked if I had a magic wand, what would this study be? Let's get the wand. Let's get the wand. And now I want to know. These are some of the things that I would think about. Um, but then again, taking into uh, consideration how do we account for maintaining skeletal muscle mass and dietary protein? So uh, you know, how do we really think about all of these things? And that's what I would love to know. So bringing it back to where we started around women and muscle mass, what do you think the biggest misconception is there? That women are going to get bulky and they're eating enough protein 
and that they're training enough. I think it's a, a huge misconception. The other misconception is that that they can't achieve a great body composition through menopause. I don't think that that's true. I think women can. I I believe because I've seen it that when you are adding in resistance training and adding in some kind of high intensity training and movement and making sure that your nutrition is really dialed in, that you can achieve a great body composition regardless of your phase in life, regardless if you have hormones on board or not. And I think that becomes very empowering. And the biggest misconception is, oh, I've hit menopause, that's it. Or uh, if I lift weights, I'm going to be too bulky. Or beef is killing the planet. That's my other favorite misconception. Uh, and all should of those share, things. Should we share that clip on Instagram? I can't wait. But I also have to say, I, I think that you probably are picking the controversial clips. I don't know. We'll see. We'll talk to our social team. And set me up for it. You are setting me up for it. I, I like that we're finding humor in it because... You're you're actually very balanced and very scientifically driven, and there are lots of people we've had on the show and people you know and we know who will kind of push the boundaries a little bit when it comes to their personal views and science. And you don't do that. I don't. And you know why? I don't do it because I was mentored with one of the fundamental values of intellectual integrity. And when you have intellectual integrity, it's okay to change your mind. And I, I don't have a, an agenda that I'm pushing. If I were to say I'm pushing any agenda, it's that I've seen a lot of people suffering. I've seen way more death than I would like to. And I, I've just seen a lot. And if I don't talk about this stuff, then I am being really irresponsible. Because in the media and in the influencer world, people are arguing about vegan, vegetarian, like all of this stuff, right? And when you're young, there's a lot of wiggle room. But as you age and mature, that window of youth closes. And it's those people that are really struggling for answers that get deeply affected. And that becomes a driving force for me because I, I think that they are suffering unnecessarily and unfairly so. Yeah, well, we touched on the, the body armor and there's the crazy stat, which we've shared, shared in the show, you know it well. If you're over age 65, there's a one in four chance you'll fall. If you fall once, you're twice as likely to fall again. If you fall and break your hip, there's a 30 to 40% chance you'll die within a year. To clarify for those, it, it's not necessarily from the fall, it could be complications from surgery, it could be, be an infection, or it could be the ensuing depression, pneumonia, lots of things that could go wrong. And to your point, anecdotally, I've seen this happen with in the past couple of years with more than a few people I know. And it's sad. It is sad. And um, I think that it is largely preventable. And with the smokescreen of having us all disagree on certain things really takes away from the focus of what needs to happen. And it's like this big machine. The ultimate question one has to ask is who stands to profit when we fight amongst ourselves? When we talk about climate change, this is not an agricultural issue in the U.S. It's just not. But if we are bickering amongst ourselves and that is a distraction from the fact that there's industry, electricity, and um, transportation that make up a huge uh, percentage 
uh, greenhouse gas or things that potentially are affecting our environment. And somehow it's geared towards agriculture, which I think as a whole is around 9%. Uh, we're not going to eat our way out of climate change. And and so you asked me, um, you know, you said that uh, about the agenda. I, I don't have one. If I were to say my agenda is how can we clean up and clear up some of this misconception about health and wellness and what we need to be doing, what are some core fundamental principles that we need to be doing and following so that we can live a long, healthy life? truly. And that is everyone should be training and you should be doing resistance exercise. Fine. If you want to do Pilates, go right ahead. I think that there is some benefit to be able to pick up a very heavy kettlebell. God forbid that there is some emergency you are trained to pick things up. I think it is very valuable to be able to carry something very heavy. I think that there are translatable skills that people must uh, maintain and build and be physically capable there is something very important about being strong um, and having enough healthy muscle mass to support longevity. That. 40% uh, of women over the age of 65 are below the recommended dietary uh, amount of protein. Wow. That's a lot of people. And this, you can look this up and calculate it yourself through the NHANES data set if you are interested. But women over the age of 65 are under-consuming dietary protein. This is going to be devastating with the changes in skeletal muscle mass and the decrease in activity that happens. And especially with falls, these things that we think about that really create major issues for people in their life and their family is this inability to get up if they fall, to maintain activities of daily life. These things are critical. So what people need, to, and by the way, 50% of Americans don't exercise. It's that high. Why well, I know that January 13th is National Quitters Day at the gym. We last 13 days. That's really funny. 24% of individuals are meeting the daily requirements for uh, all the exercise for uh, the 150 minutes plus two days of resistance training. People are not doing it. Well, we're going to get there. Everyone's going to pick up your book. And so in-closing, let's say you've been blessed with a billboard on the 405. And on this billboard, you could put anything to get your message out. What's on your billboard? Easy. Muscle is the organ of longevity. Amen. Gabrielle, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. We'll have you back. The book is forever strong. I'll hold it up to the camera again. Everyone pick it up. It's a game changer. And for everyone listening, I think the message is clear. Got to do resistance training. Got to consume enough protein and it will pay huge dividends as you age. Yes.